1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. Today, I'm honored to be speaking with Professor David Simpson about a wonderful book he published with Stanford University Press. The book is called Engaging Violence, Civility and the Reach of Literature. David Simpson is a distinguished professor emeritus at the University of California, Davis, and his most recent book is States of Terror, History, Theory and and literature which was published in 2019 and today he will be talking to us about his most recent book engaging violence david welcome to new books network thank you uh so maybe very brief you can tell us a little about a little about yourself and how the idea of this book came about violence civility and literature
0: yes uh, yes well i began my, my writing career as a romanticist in in the standard manner in the 1970s and gradually got more interested in literary theory uh, and through various highways and byways became, uh, I think after 9-11, I was very arrested by the relation between literary theory as it was then conceived and what was going on in the world. And I wrote a book on 9-11 and then I wrote a book on terror, as you said, and the civility project actually had been uh, the one I was I was engaged with when 9-11 happened and I got sidetracked because in the 1990s in the period after the fall of the Soviet empire, mm-hmm. uh, civility was a very big thing. Uh, And civil society was deemed by many sort of popular commentators and political theorists to be part and package of the same thing. Civility and civil society together was produced to explain why the Russians fell apart, because they didn't have it, and we did. So at that time, civility was pretty clearly, I think, a politically repressive ideal. And my take on it was very negative. I thought that civility was designed to um, squelch opposition, to keep noisy people quiet to uh, produce a kind of cultural code that prevented us all getting angry about the things that we should get angry about. Uh, So I had a a rather negative view of of politeness and civility as as a repressive thing. Uh, Of course, what's happened since then is it's actually shifted to the opposite end of the political spectrum, at least here in the US and certainly in other places in the world where there are powerful autocrats either in place or wanting to be in place. Um, Civility has now become a kind of liberal or even left ethos uh, in an attempt to defend our democracies from uh, the sort of violent um, behavior and antisocial violence in general of right-wing groups. So the civility spectrum has shifted pretty radically for me in the time that I've been working on it. And I think that that was always there in the civility uh, ethic to begin with, that it always did these two jobs simultaneously. And so the art of it is figuring out who was using it for what end when. Uh, And I had already, you know, done a good deal of work on the 18th century origins of this concept of civility. But what what came back to me later on was a new interest in the 20th century pedagogical institutions in the teaching literature in the universities and how that dovetailed with this traditional um, function for, for civility, which was now at that time in the 20s and 30s not really much used as a a critical concept Mm.
1: Uh, that that was quite fascinating the idea of civility and literature civility and violence and how how the idea of civility the no conception of civility has changed uh from either from repressive maybe means to something that the left group has embraced now to to protect democracy and it's not a new the idea of Literature and civility growing together as opposed to violence is not a new idea. As you mentioned, it sort of started maybe in the 18th century. Am I right?
0: Yes, that's right. Well, at that time, you know, there was no literary studies as we know it. Mm. But the whole the whole concept of the humanities was much more a, a kind of unity. So you would have political economists at one end and and sort of belles lettres at the other all basically talking the same language. Uh, And I think in the 18th century, it was largely through philosophy, through Shaftesbury and Hume particularly, that these ideas were were expressed. And um, then uh, gradually in the 19th century, when toward the end of the 19th century, when we started Teaching literature, um, the same procedures that civility was thought to encourage in political life then became part of educational life as well. So I think, and this is my take, it's not something everyone would agree on, but I think by the time you get to uh, Richards and Levis and so in 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 Britain in the early in the early 20th century, uh, the functions that a Shaftesbury would have looked for in civility are now being played out in literary literary critical seminars in the universities and by extension in the schools, because as you probably know, that whole project of Cambridge English had a huge uh, ambition to colonize the secondary schools as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about some specifics, and we'll talk about uh, Matthew Arnold and I, Richard, Ephraim Lewis. Uh, I, I might have mentioned to you that I studied English literature myself, and I was uh, I'm really No, fascinated. you didn't, actually. Oh, you okay. <laughs> so I did study English literature myself, and I'm very much into literary theory, and, uh, and, and also this whole debate about the role of literature, whether it should be a political, politicize or not and, and and this whole discussion you know this whole idea of uh, fr lewis's idea of literature and then as a student um Terry Eagleton and also yep. uh god I forgot the Raymond Williams and how they politicize literature and as a matter of fact when I was doing when I was defending my thesis so I was working on eco-feminism and it was eco-critical humanities in general and I very much included a lot of theory and political aspects to it as well and one of the comments i got was that you were going out of the realm of literature but my idea yeah. was that literature needs to be involved in 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 everyday life phenomena yeah. especially the political issues when you're talking about climate change but anyway we'll talk yeah. about this so i'm I'm really interested to know more about uh, the idea that literature and this is something you talk about in the book literature in in concept with civility provided space for resolving conflicts yes Um, how did it work well i think the the particular power of literature which
0: richards and others realized uh is that it is virtual it's not about real life or rather it is about real life (laughs) of course it is it cannot not be and it cannot not be politicized but it is also about real life at one remove you know reading about somebody doing something is not the same as doing it even if reading about it leads you to do it. It's definitely a deliberative process. You have to move from one to the other. And I think what the Richardses and the Levises were interested in and what they believed in the power of was that ability of literature to slow down reading and to slow down response. So the very fact that you're approaching a concept through literature means you have a kind of medium in which you can explore ways of responding that have no consequences in the world. You can think them through, you can feel them through, but nothing actually happens. Okay. And I think that was the power of literature, that it was a it was a suspension of action, which is not apolitical, but pre-political. In other words, before there is a politics, they thought there had to be this suspension of action, this taking of time, possibly to consider what the consequences might be, and also to diminish uh the kind of instantaneous nature of potential violence um does that make sense
1: yeah yeah it does and uh you you talked about philosophy a few minutes ago in your book you sort of critique Kant and Schiller for their racialized aesthetics can you talk about that aspect of your book please yeah well
0: that's um that's an interesting debate in certainly in Kant studies for instance in enlightenment studies uh, david lloyd has written a wonderful book called underrepresentation which takes which makes a very persuasive argument for kant as fundamentally racist and therefore in- in- inapplicable to the needs of the modern world um, i take a slightly different view whilst agreeing with you know 95% of what david says Uh, I think that the potential of the Kantian aesthetic is such that it is always potential and that the capacity to join the society of aesthetic responders is indeterminate. It cannot be limited. And so the fact that Kant will on the one hand say, well, black Africans don't have an aesthetic sense, and in another voice will say, well, at least they like to uh, decorate themselves with ornaments. Now, those two statements put together don't really add up because the minute you've agreed to um, an ornamental instinct, which Kant tries to dismiss uh, by a word he simply calls charm rather than beauty. uh, But the minute you have an aesthetic um, inspiration, the minute you have an aesthetic uh, impulse, you've crossed the world, you, you started forming the world and you started um, distancing yourself from the thing that you have made in such a way that the aesthetic response inevitably begins. Hegel realized this instantly. That's where Hegel deliberately departs from Kant or what he took Kant to be saying. So actually did Schiller and so did Schelling. So as soon as there was this view that in, in some writings of Kant, not all of them, that you could, in fact, exclude certain populations or certain ethnicities from the sphere of aesthetic response, that was challenged. And so, you know, one looks to romanticism for a rehearsal of this problem. Um, mm.
1: uh, yeah, as I told you, so I'm, I studied literature, so I was really interested in your discussion on Richardson, Pamela, as well. And, yes. Yeah. Again, one, one, one fascinating aspect of the book is the role of. Um, uh, the role of print culture and how it creates yes. that, that backgrounds for, for literature and civility to foster a yes. non-violent public sphere yes. to discuss yes. ideas. And then you have the example of Richardson Pamola. Can you give yes. us this background to this print culture? Yes. How it created yes. that? And then maybe talk about. Wow. Yeah. Yes. Well, R- Richardson is brilliant on
0: this issue, and Pamela in that respect is a brilliant book, because if you remember, the whole of Pamela is premised on the exchange of letters, mm. uh, that is to say a small private group, all agreeing to reconstruct their own social behaviour around the model, uh, around pa- with, with Pamela's guidance, partly in person, but also partly through the exchange and the perusal of letters. Um, so, it's it's a distinctly small group operation um pamela's civilizing the social group can only happen one at a time and in one place at a time but by by producing the epistolary novel by putting the letters into print form and selling thousands of copies which richardson did that small group model then becomes disseminated to the entire reading audience and You know, pretty much everybody who was reading read it, Um, Mm -hmm. men and women, even though it's sort of, you know, typified as a woman's book, it really isn't. It's about the Mm disciplining of male violence, among other things. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think Richardson's play with that model is is really quite brilliant. And of course, it asks the question for us now, well, how viable is this model um, in a world in which people read less and less? And I think that's a difficult question. I don't take the despairing view that nobody reads at all. I think there's every evidence that they do. Um, But what I think has changed is that whereas Pamela represents an emergent moment before the formation of public education, the heyday of which happens in the early 20th century, we now are facing the questioning or assault on public education or perhaps the assault on the place of literary teaching within it um, in such a way that we are now on the defensive, and we have to find ways of hanging on to that or repackaging it or bringing it back. Um, And I think social media can do this in its own way. I don't think it's as effective as people in a room, or rather it's effective in different ways. Maybe it's more effective because, again, as with, you know, our personal exchange could theoretically be listened to by hundreds and hundreds of people. I hope it will be. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But, you know, uh, the the potential is there. We have a small group discussion, but
1: it can go places that we can't control. And uh, apart from... print culture the a sort of a dialogue was created literature and philosophy they created this idea of inquiry and dialogue for yes. civil society and um uh, there were two there are two terms that are also used in your book innate controller and impartial spectator which is by adam yes. smith so uh, yes. th- these are really great ideas that I'm, I'm sure our listeners would be interested to know more about Yes,
0: the inmate controller is the voice inside us which stops us doing something we might otherwise do. In other words, it makes us hesitate, it makes us think twice. And in that sense, it serves the same function for the individual as, say, a a seminar would for a group, you know, or a classroom would for a group. Um, A voice which says, no, I don't agree with that. Have you considered X or Y? and maybe you should do it this way and not that way. Now, my point about the literary, the transfer of that model to a literary seminar or literary education, literary pedagogy, is that that uh, hesitation and that open-mindedness is much easier to achieve if you don't have a dog in the race. If you are not directly um, uh, yourself seeking to act or perform something, you have time to think about it. And that's what I was talking about earlier, the virtuality of the literary medium—you mm. know, reading about something rather than doing it, or rather, reading about doing it and not doing it before doing it. So the inmate controller does that for Shaftesbury. Uh, the impartial spectator does much the same for Adam Smith. It's that voice which says to us: Is there another way to do this? Um, should I be thinking out through? Should I be thinking through another approach? Uh, or? Am I on the right track? Immediately you've done that. You've taken the steam out of that kind of fundamental energy on which violence depends. Now, it can produce a different kind of violence, a kind of cold violence, the kind of violence of the torturer or the interrogator. Um, but it isn't impulsive violence. And I think, uh, you know, Levison and Richards and their kind thought that if you could diminish impulsive violence, you'd have gone a long way. To, to, to improving um, social life. And, of course, they were, they were responding, as so many were, to the disaster of the First World War. Um, so, in many ways, this, this literary pedagogy I'm talking about is a small-scale version of what the League of Nations was trying to attempt, a, a global dialogic situation in which critical violence could be headed off or at least debated
1: and uh, well, the, you 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 talk about this this energy of in let's say this this transformative energy of violence, which sometimes is necessary to bring about yes. change and progress. Yes. So yes. So, do you think that this idea of civility or dialogue that is created by literature, philosophy, print culture did it also play a repressive role in in progress of you know, in bringing about progressive ideas? Inevitably, yes. You cannot have the one without the other. Mm. It's a neutral medium.
0: And as soon as you put things into the hopper, uh, if if I'm correct, as soon as you put things into the hopper and dilute the energy of those um, initiatives or those impulses, uh, if those are good impulses, then you've done a bad thing. If they are bad impulses, you've done a good thing. And that I think civility is always ambivalent. Dialogue is always ambivalent in that sense. Uh, and so it's really a matter of figuring out at any one point um, where you want to put your dialogic, your, your, your civil energies. And um, as I said earlier, I mean, for, 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 the, for look, looking, on, looking at things in the 1990s um, with the um, so-called New World Order, triumph of neoliberalism, civility was definitely a negative thing i thought now i think it's changed um so there's nothing essential in civility either one way or the other and that's why it's so difficult to talk about because we cannot erect it into a kind of independent metaphysic of good behavior Mm.
1: Uh, and is that why the Writers in in the nineteenth century became more skeptical of the idea of civility, and they uh, turned yes, towards yeah, the yeah. German idea of culture. Yes, that's a very interesting question, and I I thought about it a lot. And
0: of course, I've written about it as you've seen. Um, something goes wrong with the idea of civility in the early nineteenth century. <laughs> And it is partly, I think, a sense of its inauthenticity, the the very thing you've just brought up. You know, can civility be a bad thing? Uh, Because as well as accommodating both sides of the political spectrum, civility also allows for the flourishing of hypocrisy. And this worried a lot of people. It starts with Chesterfield's letters in the 1770s, which had a huge audience. And what Chesterfield really did he came along and he said, forget all this stuff about politeness in, in, in Pamela and the need to be nice to people. Chesterfield suggested, you know, really, this is all just hypocrisy. People are nice to people in order to get what they want. And as soon as they've got it, they'll perfectly happily stab, stab them in the back. Uh, and so civility began to t- uh, became more and more um associated with a rather facile notion of politeness, which in turn um, came to be associated more and more with uh, a rather more threatening notion of hypocrisy and self-interest. And this was actually there right from the start, but we didn't you know we need't talk about that. Um, the eighteenth century, late eighteenth century was the kind of um, summum of this the the, the 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 essential kind of development of this view. and then, so in the 19th century, I think they're looking for something else to do the work of, of civilizing people, you know, of, of, um, of making people socially uh, positive rather than destructive. And they came up, as you say, with culture, the German Bildung, which is much more internal, in, in, as it was used in those days, much more internalized idea of taking in the world's um, impressions, the world's data, and reformulating them in some way uh, that allows you to be at peace with yourself. Mm -hmm. And so culture, it's very internalistic. It is a turn away from um, the social sphere, even though, of course, 19th century literature does not turn away from the social sphere by any means. Quite the opposite. That's why we have the realist novel. Uh, But in terms of an ethic of behavior, I think there is a new emphasis on culture, uh, it emerges fully in Matthew Arnold, uh, and it lasts into Richards. Also, Coleridge, of course, it's there before Arnold. Coleridge, Arnold, Richards would be the good would be a good kind of trajectory to follow to make sense of all this. Um, culture becomes the thing that displaces civility as a way of um, of of modelling ideal human behaviour, um, and that in turn becomes stressed as. People look at culture and say, well, culture's all very well, but we can't just have people sitting in their own corners being cultured. There has to be more than that. You know, there has to be a social dimension. And as Raymond Williams most evidently has kind of magisterially demonstrated, the word culture comes to be uh, comes under enormous pressure, as well as, as being dispersed into
1: all sorts of uses through the 19th and 20th centuries. And it's quite fascinating how this legacy is. You mentioned but Matthew Arnold's idea of culture, and then you have F.R. Lewis's idea of great tradition, the idea of literature and humanities, and then you have Raymond Williams so, and his students, Terry Gilton, which we mentioned at the beginning, who, again, bring the idea of, uh, idea of literature being more engaged with political issues. Yes. Uh, yes. So can we see this as that? kind of idea. I, I I don't think the violence is the right word to use this here for, I mean, for the political agenda of Raymond no, Eagleton. No. but the idea no. that the literature must be engaged again with, with pressing issues of the time.
0: Yes, I, I think these are not incompatible. Um, the, 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 the dialogic civility model would simply interpose some compulsory discussion and airing of differences. Uh, into into the arena. Uh, there's nothing there's nothing about civility as I see it, uh, nothing about literary pedagogy as I see it that is innately either repressive or progressive. I think it is a kind of open space for the exploration of all kinds of options uh, and those include, The kind of political referentiality that williams and eagleton rightly insist on and i would agree i don't disagree with that at all Mm -hmm. um and you can see in the modern novel i think that 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 um um referentiality is is almost always there um but it's when we agree that this is a novel we're talking about to give an example could be a poem when we agree that this is a novel we're talking about. We are already holding back from the immediate conversion of impulse into action, mm. and, and that that is probably not a bad thing. Although, if it if someone interferes with that in a way that makes it impossible to uh, imagine action, then it becomes repressive in the ways that we already discussed.
1: And. Uh... And another thing is this, again, the model of literary engagement that kind of took off again in after 1960s, I guess, with, with with French theory, critical theory, cultural studies, and in, in especially events like town hall politics. What do you mean by yeah. town hall politics? And why did they kind of become popular after the fall of Soviet Union?
0: Uh, yes this is the Robert Putnam syndrome as I call it you know Robert, Robert Putnam <laughs> famous Harvard uh, political scientist wrote this best-selling book on what's wrong with America and uh it, it what's wrong with America was that we don't all uh you know bowling alone it was called um and what's wrong with America is we don't all go to meetings anymore we sit at home and watch TV uh, instead of instead of that we need to be joining societies and, and going to debates and things like that, you know, joining local government. Mm-hmm. It's a myth of, of frontier America that has been very powerful in this country and has been argued to be entirely false, or at least significantly false. That is to say, uh, local government was never truly representative. Mm-hmm. It was always run by elites. They just met in smaller groups, so we mustn't romanticize these small groups. That's exactly what Putnam did, I think, although others might disagree. Uh, so it was—it was a—it was it, it flourished as part of an ethos of anti-statism, which I'm afraid is still with us, though largely now in the hands of the right. Um, that is to say, government from from outside is not healthy. That's the Soviet model, the socialist model. What we need instead is self-generated, locally-based communities, building a new America from the ground up. And there was a huge wave of this kind of pop sociology in the 1990s. One of the reasons I, as I said earlier, I found civility to be a largely repressive doctrine at that time. Um, The idea that we could solve everything by face-to-face experience, Um, um, by talking the dialogic moment Mm -hmm. now the dialogic moment is always small and I said if you don't have what Richardson imagined which is a print culture equivalent enabling you to generalize this and to make it available to more and more people then what you have is basically government by an elite not a democracy
1: and uh so, so what was the role of literary theory in in conceptualizing the idea of europe as an alternative to washington consensus and violence
0: um literary theory specifically yes well there i think um uh the important moment was the kind of um, entente cordiale between Derrida and Habermas, who had hitherto largely been on opposite sides of the left liberal spectrum. Um, and Derrida was deeply not a communitarian-minded person, and Habermas always was. Uh, But I think they did come together um, in the idea of an alternative to the Washington Consensus, an alternative basically to the Cold War standoffs, that when the Russian uh, collapse occurred, or the Soviet Empire collapse, I should say, occurred, um, there was an opportunity there for a new uh, political configuration. And, of course, it was at that time that the, the European Union was also expanding from its original basis as a bilateral economic pact to a kind of continental organization governing all sorts of things with common laws and common culture and all the rest of it Um, it was a very big moment for the possibility of standing outside uh, either neoliberal capitalism or uh, authoritarian communism there could be a, a different alternative and that view was was imagined as europe And you had a lot of very powerful and also utopian writing on how Europe could model itself as neither of the other two things, how it could be a positive alternative, a third way, if you like.
1: And uh, there is another author, Balibor, um, who talks about the idea of inconvertible violence. What is meant by inconvertible violence? Yes, that's a very difficult concept, as Bali <laughs> as Bali himself spends,
0: you know, many pages telling us. Uh, uh, my understanding of it is that uh, Bali Bar insists that, however hard you work at diminishing violence, and the th- however hard you theorise an alternative to it, there is still something he calls inconvertible violence, which cannot be finessed away, cannot be wished away, cannot be. Um, c- cannot be uh, discouraged. You know, it's going to be there. And especially, of course, in uh, cultures which are still fundamentally exploitative, as as European cultures still are, even if they're not, you know, as obviously so as perhaps some American uh, uh, elements. Um, uh, you cannot imagine, you cannot conceive of an ethic in which... Um, Uh, violence will um, entirely go away. That's what he means by inconvertible. Mm. So in order to theorize a new civility, he says, we have to imagine a civility with violence as well as a civility that seeks to diminish it. And what that is, I think, is always going to be open to discussion. It could be, for instance, the violence of men against women. Uh, It could be homophobia. It could be, um, all sorts of things, and, racial violence, of
1: course, yeah. and, uh, these days, you know, it's, it's just a lot of conservatives, liberals, and also the left are all obsessed with the idea of literature. They're, they parts of the U S they're trying to ban some books, some novels. Everybody talks about critical race theory without even knowing what, what the heck it is. So what is the role of literature in 21st century, especially with the rise of you know radical politics in, towards civility and violence? How do you see this role?
0: The role of literature in contemporary yeah.
1: Um, culture? Yeah.
0: Well, I think it's got to be reimagined, um, and I think it is being reimagined. I mean, one of the points I make in the, in the book is that um, you know literature hasn't disappeared despite the rise of social media. Um, it's still with us. And I think the the healthiness of the global Anglophone novel and the other novels that make it into translation and therefore available to a worldwide audience, or at least potential, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who happen to be able to speak or read English, unfortunately, is the only option we have at the moment. Um, I think it's still very, very viable. People do still read and we all complain, oh, well, I do, I'm, I don't know if you do. <laughs> we, we, we all complain that kids have an attention span of 30 seconds for a, a, a Facebook or a TikTok entry, you know, and no longer read books. But actually, I think they do. Um, I think what uh, we still, after all, teach readings, t- teach uh, literary uh, reading in the schools, Uh It's under stress. It's under stress in this country, in the U.S., because of uh, the book banners, you know, the people who don't want any kind of difficult topic being brought up in the classroom. But the fact that it's even a discussion shows us, I think, that this is still a living thing.
1: Professor David Simpson, thank you very, very much for your time and for sharing your thoughts about this wonderful book. It's a, I think it's a very, very timely topic, and I strongly encourage our listeners to read the book and engage with the ideas there. I personally learned a lot from the book and cannot thank you enough for talking to us on your Books Network about it.
0: Well, I'm grateful, very grateful to you for inviting me, and I've, um, I've learned a lot from this discussion. Thank you.